The Guardian. Hello, I'm Michael White and this is uh, Guardian Daily. Uh, I'm here in Westminster where David Cameron has this morning given a keynote speech on the economy and the need to cut public expenditure to get it all back into balance. Quite scary stuff. The decisions we make will affect every single person in this country. And the effects of those decisions will stay with us for years, perhaps even decades to come. I'm John Dennis, here at The Guardian's HQ, Larry Elliott, our economics editor, looks at Cameron's approach to the UK's deficit. They're creating the frenzy which they themselves want to create in order to justify what they're doing. And in other news today, after twin babies are attacked in their cot, how worried should we be about urban foxes? It's more than unusual, it's, in my view, it's the first I've ever known. This is Michael White. Uh, I'm hanging around in Portcullis House, Westminster, as I do these days, where I'm uh, watching MPs digest David Cameron's speech in Milton Keynes, Open University, this morning on the scale of the debt problems which he says Britain has inherited from the Labour government, his government has, and what he's going to do about it. Now, I've been in office for a month, and I've spent much of that time discussing with the Chancellor, with government officials, the most urgent issue facing Britain today, and that is our massive deficit and our growing debt. How we deal with these things will affect our economy and our society, indeed our whole way of life. The decisions we make will affect every single person in this country. And being the new Prime Minister, Mr Cameron did what all new Prime Ministers do. He left us in no doubt who was to blame for all this. I think people understand by now that the debt crisis is the legacy of the last government. But exactly the same, I believe, applies to the action we will need to take to deal with it. If there are cuts, they are part of that legacy. And now that we've had a chance to look at what's really been going on, I want to tell you the scale of the problem that we face. Now, we've known for a long time that our debts are huge. Last year, our budget deficit was the largest in our peacetime history. This year, at least according to the previous government forecasts, it is set to be over 11% of our GDP, of our whole national income. Today, our national debt stands at 770 billion pounds. Why is it so urgent to tackle it now? Well, Mr Cameron was honest enough to say we're not in the plight of Greece, as some silly commentators have said, but it's serious, and if we don't get uh, things under control, then it will cost us all, government and individual, a lot more uh, to fund our debts. Interest rates will soar up if confidence is lost. There are three simple reasons why we have to deal with the country's debts. One, the more the government borrows, the more it has to repay. The more it has to repay the more lenders worry about getting their money back. And the more lenders start to worry, the less confidence there is in our economy. Two, investors, people lending us this money, they don't have to put their money in Britain. They will only do so if they are confident that the economy is being run properly. And if confidence in our economy is hit, we run the risk of higher interest rates. Three, And the real human, everyday reason that this is the most urgent problem facing Britain 
is that higher interest rates hurt every family and every business in our land. Okay, the world's getting around uh, Westminster. These speeches take time to travel. Let's see who we can find and what they make of it all. Stephen Timms, former financial secretary to the Treasury, a chief secretary as well to the Treasury, both of them. Well, you've read the uh, Cameron speech. What do you think? Well, there's obviously a great deal in the speech that I disagree with. One of the thoughts that came to me in looking at it is there's a certain amount of rewriting history going on here. And, of course, David Cameron himself explicitly endorsed the then Labour government's spending plans not very long after he became leader of his party. So, 2006-07, when Gordon Brown was still Chancellor. That's, that's right. So at, at that stage, he didn't believe... Uh, the government was spending too much money. Of course, what's happened is we've had a wholly unexpected worldwide credit crunch, and that's shifted the parameters. And we, it is therefore necessary to make spending reductions, as we made very clear. But for the Conservatives to say this is all a great shock and that uh, you know now they've looked at the numbers, they kind of see the picture very differently. I think that's all new completely say that, don't they? misleading. They say well, the well, well, maybe they do, but yeah. it's uh, it's uh, misleading and uh, unfortunate. Now, uh, I don't think the word investment banking, didn't they make a mess of it, appears in Mr Cameron's speech, but he is right in one half of his analysis, isn't he, that uh, uh, particularly under Chancellor Brown, you were in the Treasury at the time for part of that time, that... Uh, the government did let the structural gap between what it was spending and borrowing and what it was raising in taxation get a bit too large. Several percent, it's disputed, but three, four percent of, uh, of the tax take. Am I not right? Well, I, I think when we look back at the, the latter years of the Labour government, certainly the, part, the last couple of, of years of the government, actually, the government was very successful in avoiding the kind of scale of problems that we saw in the UK in the 1980s and the 1990s in recessions and uh, public spending was a very important part of how we supported the economy when it needed support. That's why we're looking at the moment at you know, a million and a half people claiming unemployment benefit rather than three million. And the big That's danger... Because maintain demand uh, uh, through uh, uh, the public uh, side of the economy while the private side recovers from the recession. We, we, we did. We use public spending in the way that governments should use it. And the big danger which the, the new government is opening up is the possibility of pushing the economy back into recession, this, this double dip. By cutting too, too much yeah, too quickly. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. And this kind of relish for setting about these swinging reductions, six billion already, fiercely opposed by the Liberal Democrats, by Nick Clegg personally during the election campaign, now suddenly signed up to. And I don't quite understand that because I thought the whole point of this coalition was that having the Lib Dems in there would protect us from the the, the wilder proposals of the uh, Conservative uh, uh, politicians, but actually the Lib Dems just rolled over and signed up to the whole six billion without a squeak. Right. Uh, can't leave you without uh, mentioning the obvious thing. Uh, you're just back, uh, first day back in the Commons after the uh, rather frightening attack on you and your constituency office. How are you feeling? I, I, I am. This is um, day one. Um, I've had three weeks doing absolutely nothing. Um, 
and uh, so I'm uh, looking forward to getting back into uh, the swing of things. I've, I've had literally thousands of messages of goodwill, which I've been very grateful for, and um, I'm uh, glad to be able to be back. And this was a knife wound in the stomach? Uh, it was. It was at my constituency surgery just over three weeks ago. Good luck. You're looking very well. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Jonathan Isabey, Sage of Conservative Home, the influential website. What did you make of the Cameron speech? Well, of course, we read most of what was going to be in it in the, the papers beforehand. Uh, you do but... disapprove of pre-spin? <laughs> well, I guess it's, it's part of uh, the way these things work, and I didn't quite know how we'd, we'd row back from it. I think, uh, well, he obviously uh, kind of took on board the, the kind of first rule of a new government, which is obviously to blame your predecessor, but I think rightly so in this instance. Gordon Brown was Chancellor for 10 years, Prime Minister for three. He's the one who had his uh, you know, hands on the purse strings for all that time. He's the one who did create the situation in which we find ourselves. Not entirely. The one word which isn't in the Cameron speech is banking. Uh, you'd think Brown did it all, where he's only to blame for part of it. Uh, the banking industry blew up. Brown is the one who went on the unprecedented spending and borrowing binge, uh, the results of which we now see so so clearly, and in, in, in doing so, also claimed to have abolished boom and bust and encouraged yep. everyone to spend. I mean, you know, he, he people originally used to talk of Brown as this wonderful chancellor. I think history would be very unkind to him in terms of his, his uh, record on, on that. That might be so. Uh, and, you know, David Cameron's obviously now setting out the, uh, the course which, uh, the, the painful course, which uh, we're going to see him go down over, over the coming, well, fortnight when the budget happens and, and indeed the next several years, which are clearly going to be painful all around. Back at Guardian HQ, the paper's economics editor, Larry Elliott, has also been taking a look. Do Cameron's figures stack up? Well, it's hard to know because he's just plucked a few figures out of the air and um, certainly the figure of £70 billion for debt interest payments, I'd not seen that figure before and it's much higher than any figure that I'd seen uh, in the 2010 budget book, that's for sure. And what about the Canadian model? He's talking about um, getting cabinet ministers being forced to justify their budgets before a star chamber of ministers and senior civil servants, which is based on something that happened in Canada in the 1990s. Is this Canadian model an apt? uh, um, is, Is it similar to what's happening in the UK now? Well, not exactly, because what you've got to remember about Canada is that it's got a very big neighbour to the south, the US, and so what happens in the Canadian economy is very heavily influenced by what happens in the American economy. And so in the 1990s, when the Canadians were cutting their public deficit, the private sector was doing well because uh, the world economy was going through an upswing, and in particular the US economy was going through a particularly good period. The sort of Clinton years in the US were remarkably good for growth, so Canada piggybacked on the back of that. So... Our nearest neighbour is the, the Eurozone, um, and that's not doing very well. So it's not a particularly apt uh, comparison, I don't think, because if the Eurozone continues to struggle, then the chances of us having a private sector export-led recovery are obviously diminished. So I think we could be a bit careful about using that comparison between Britain and Canada in the 1990s. Cameron insists, of course, that uh, we have to start cutting the deficit now um, in order to appease the, the global financial markets. Um, the, the markets would... would down today. Um, what do they think about the government's strategy towards the deficit? Well, I think that to an extent this is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy on Cameron's part because I don't think the markets, if you look at what was happening to those before the election or even during the period when the coalition was being pieced together, the markets weren't in any way going 
nuts about the UK deficit. There was no real sign that there was a bond strike or there was a run on sterling at all. So to an extent, this is being hyped up by by the coalition. And now if they disappoint the markets, they may well reap the reap the um, punishment from the markets. I think that they're, they're actually, they are creating the frenzy which they themselves want to create in order to justify what they're doing. And what do you make of the government's claims that the public finances are in a much worse state than they suspected before the election? Well, again, that's hard really to square with the information that's come out in the last couple of months. If you think back to the 2009 budget, i.e. about 14 months ago, Alistair Darling was then pencilling in a deficit of something like £175 billion. In the 2010 budget, i.e. about two or three months ago, he cut that to £165 billion or thereabouts. And when the figures actually came in, they were well below £160 billion. So most of the recent evidence has suggested that the deficit's been coming in lower than the government predicted. Now, it's always possible, I suppose, that the... You know, the economy is going to go uh, downhill from here on in, maybe because of the public spending cuts the government's going to bring in. But uh, there's nothing so far which has suggested that the figures are actually any worse than the, the Conservatives and the Liberals should have thought in opposition. In fact, they're, they're slightly better than we might have imagined three months ago. Larry Elliott there speaking to John Dennis. But before we uh, throw back to uh, Guardian HQ, uh, the Labour candidates for the vacant leadership have been engaged in hustings uh, organised by the GMB uh, union in, I think, Southport uh, uh, today. It's all been shown on the GMB's television feed very professionally. Uh, one man missing is Ed Balls. He's here at Westminster taking question time from the opposite benches, opposition benches this time, of course, for the first time. Uh, but the other five were there. Don't forget uh, Diane Abbott and John McDonald, the left-wing challengers who don't look as if they're going to get the 33 nominations needed to qualify for the proper contest. Uh, they're allowed in because nominations don't close till Thursday. So a good range of opinions. I thought they were all articulate and impressive, just as good as those party leaders in the uh, election uh, TV debates a month or so ago, and a proper range of, uh, of views. Uh, David Miliband, as articulate as I've ever heard him. He's the front runner, of course. But, you know, Diane Abbott and John McDonald can talk a bit too, and so can Andy Burnham and uh, Ed Miliband. Uh, one of the questions which stretched this good-natured debate to the, as it were, limits of ideological disagreement was how far should the private sector be allowed to uh, get involved in the provision of public services, a matter of great importance to trade union members, of course, and here are some of the answers. David. I believe passionately in the power of public services to affect change in people's lives. And I'm proud that we've got bigger public services, more people in public services, as well as much, much better public services. However, if you take the example of Macmillan nurses and what, how they complement the work of the National Health Service, I cannot sit here today and say to you that I'm going to prevent or stop the work of the Macmillan nurses do with NHS funding. Thank you, uh, David. Andy. But I changed the policy because the NHS was entering a different period. And when you're not expanding the service anymore, but when you are asking existing staff to change what they do and to look at making savings, I felt it was right to have more security under NHS staff in that position. Now, everybody didn't agree, but I introduced the NHS preferred provider policy. Thank you, Andy. Ed. I agree with much of what Andy said. We must fight for the rights of public servants, and in particular in the health service. I think it is very, very important that it is a service run uh, in the public sector, and that is uh, where, where, what people associate with the health service. That's what they value about the health service. Let me make one other point, though. 
What's most important also is that we campaign across this country for better pay and conditions for people, whether they're working in the public or private sector. I've launched a campaign which, is, which is builds on what the GMB did with Telco uh, in East London around the living wage. Uh, and we should be campaigning as a Labour Party, as a political movement on the living wage for people in every sector uh, of our society. Thank you, uh, Diane. Private sector involvement is wrong in principle. It is wrong that we should have privatised sections of the prison service. Only the state can have the right to take away somebody's liberty or constrain their liberty. But it's also wrong in practice. <laughs> Well, there we are. I thought the tone was very positive and upbeat. And then in a moment of carelessness, uh, John MacDonald uh, said if he could relive the 1980s again, yes, he'd have assassinated Margaret Thatcher. A lot of people may endorse that thought, but it's not a sensible thing for sensible mainstream leadership candidates to say. He didn't have uh, any chance of becoming Labour leader, but uh, that'll offend a lot of people, not least of all tomorrow's tabloids. That's the top line of this event. What a shame. But now back to John Dennis uh, at uh, Guardian HQ. Thanks, Mike. Two nine-month-old twins are recovering at the Royal London Hospital after being mauled by a fox. Lola and Isabella Kouparis were attacked in their cot on Saturday night in Homerton in East London. One suffered serious facial injuries. So how unusual is this? John Bryant is a wildlife consultant who specialises in foxes. Well, it's more than unusual. It's, in my view, it's the first I've ever known in 40 years of dealing with foxes. There have been one or two previous reports, but uh, they turned out to be, one turned out to be a German shepherd, uh, and the other one turned out to be a cat. So this particular case, if authenticated, is, as far as I'm concerned, a first. I mean, what seems to have happened, uh, if it was a fox, is that they left the the door open uh, downstairs and then the fox came up upstairs and attacked them in their cot. I mean, what do, you, what do you make of that? If it's silly enough to leave a door open, and if I lived in the east end of London, I wouldn't leave a door open anywhere. But the fact is, if you leave a door open at this time of year, there are thousands now all over London of three-month-old, naive, young fox cubs starting to venture around their parents' territory. Um, they know nothing, they're very naive, they're very curious, and if they see an open door, particularly if they, there are food smells coming out of it, they will walk in and walk around the house and, and run out with a handbag or a pair of shoes very often. But what certainly is sure about this case is that no fox went in that house for the purpose of attacking people or children. How did it happen then? Well, I don't know. I thought, well, maybe it's gone in the house, it's climbed up the stairs, gone all the way up, and then, you know, sent something in, this, in the cot jumped in the cot, uh, and then, of course, the, you know, the babies may have woken up. One of them may have even, you know, caught hold of it in a sleepy state, and the foxes panicked and lashed out and then jumped out of the cot again. Apart from keeping our doors shut, what else can we do to protect children from foxes? Well, you don't need to, because, I mean, I deal with hundreds of schools. And foxes love schools because there's never any dogs to worry about in. There's never any dogs sent there, so they can completely relax because they're not bothered about human beings, particularly if they're urban foxes. And there's always food in schools. There's always uh, a little conservation area where they can set up home and, and have a drink of uh, out of the pond, uh, you know, and snatch the odd frog or two. And I've never, ever known a, a fox cause a problem in a school. And when I go into schools, I advise, get rid of all the litter bins, don't allow anybody to eat outside, then there's nothing for them to come looking for. 
get a dog on a lead and patrol the boundaries of it once a day. Thousands of people welcome them. They feed them in their gardens. It's not something I recommend, but it's it's small wonder that they associate people with food. Our streets are full of rubbish, uh, and if it's not foxes having it, other scavengers would. Uh, so on top of the people feeding them and the, and, the, and the stuff that they can scavenge from around human habitation, they're always going to be here. Guardian Daily was produced today by Tim Maybe and in Westminster by Phil Maynard. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.